Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Bill Kristol, the writer and editor-at-large of The Weekly Standard, the conservative magazine he founded over two decades ago. A former aide to Dan Quayle, Kristol has for many years been one of the most visible conservative commentators, famous for his support of the Iraq War and his so-called neoconservatism. In recent years, Kristol has been a loud voice in opposition to Donald Trump, first trying to recruit a conservative challenger to him, and now frequently attacking Trump's assault on democratic norms and institutions. I wanted to speak to him about his career in Republican politics and conservative media, as well as where he sees the future of the Republican Party. Bill Crystal, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Isaac. So tell us a little bit, for people who don't know your background, your your parents are very famous conservatives. How how did you get your start in conservative politics and media? I was uh, minding my own business as an assistant professor, uh, teaching mostly political philosophy, really, at Penn and Harvard, and then came to Washington. But I had an interest in politics and came to Washington in 1985 to work in the second term of the Reagan administration for Bill Bennett at the Education Department. Ran a campaign, uh, became Vice President Quayle's chief of staff in the first Bush administration uh, at the end of the Cold War, and then uh, did some politics and then started the Weekly Standard with Fred Barnes and David Brooks and Andy Ferguson and a few others in uh, September 95. So that was a long time ago, and have basically edited the Weekly Standard ever since, stepped up to be editor at large a year ago. Steve Hayes took over the, the day-to-day operations, and and uh, so I've done some government and some politics and some and some media, but all on the uh, conservative-slash-Republican-ish side. So would you say from the time, I guess, you were growing up, um, there must politics must have been talked a lot uh, in your household, um, I would imagine, if that's... Yeah, and it was the late 60s in New York City, and, you know, my I was kind of at that point, and my parents were too, kind of anti-communist liberals, uh, Hubert Humphrey, Scoop Jackson, Democrats, um, and I was, you know, I was interested in politics. I... I rebelled against my generation rather than against my parents, and so I be I stayed with them as sort of uh, uh, skeptics of the new left, and and with them really, I mean, I I was too young to ever really move from being a liberal to a conservative. I I was actually for Scoop Jackson in 1972, so a Democrat I actually supported for president when I was 18 years old. But of course, he lost the primary, and I voted for Nixon over McGovern my first my first election. So I was never on the left. I think it's fair to say, though, uh, you know, had a lot of sympathy with a kind of old fashioned uh, liberalism. And would you say, from the time you got to Washington until, let's say, the Weekly Standard or through the Bush administration, would you say your politics changed at all in any noticeable way, or do you think it was fairly for those first couple decades it was it was fairly um, consistent or constant? Yeah, I mean, I think fairly consistent. I mean, the issues of the day change. So obviously, when the Berlin Wall falls, you know, the focus goes to different things, and after nine eleven, and 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 so forth. So I, I think I focused on different issues, and I, like any normal person, I adjusted my views on some things. Probably became, I hope, I became a little less dogmatic. I don't know when one grows older, one does see a little more the complexity of things. But no, I would basically say I they were fairly consistent, and I think like many many people on both the left and right. You know, of course, one adjusted some and uh, one got a little more uh, militant at times if one was exasperated with one's opponents and at other times one was in a more compromising mood and so forth. And But, uh, you know, really from when I got here in 85, I would say to about 2015, that's 30 years, you can draw a pretty straight line in my, in my case. And, and I think in that of most others, and I, I say most others because I, you know, I was talking about this with someone the other day, you know, a lot of us got to know each other in the late 80s. And there were occasional breaks and and ruptures, I guess, but basically the circle of friendly acquaintances, 
quasi-colleagues, associates with whom one felt one was vaguely on the same side. You know, I felt a lot of those same people were there in 2000, I don't know, 12, let's say, as had been there in, in 1990. You know, and I think the same would be true. I was talking about this with a liberal. He was saying the same thing. Uh, for me, at least, that, that, of course, changed in the last year or two. Well, let me ask you then about the the last year or two. Um, I, I was wondering when you when you think about the conservative movement as as a movement as something that your your father obviously is a famous Irving Kristol famous figure in the conservative movement in the second half of the 20th century, and then the conservative movement that you wrote about and were a part of at the end of the 20th century and early 21st century. Does the rise of Trump, does the fact that Trump was able to win the Republican nomination and sort of um, take control of the party in many ways and gain so much support from Republican office holders and even Republican um, writers and uh, people like that. Does that make you sort of reappraise the whole movement or look at it in a different way? Yeah, to some degree. I mean, a lot depends, I think, on how lasting that is. If Trump turns out to be a parenthesis, kind of a one-off, uh, you know, gets nominated once, selected once, uh, uh, you know, kind of charms, maybe that's not quite the right word, but uh, uh, wins over uh, conservatives and Republicans for a year or two, but it all fades away, they come to their senses, you know, then one could say, well, it was a sort of unfortunate parenthesis. I think that's been true of other movements. If he's renominated, if that stickiness uh, stays there with conservatives continuing to rationalize and defend him, Republican elected officials, whatever their private reservations, continuing to support him uh, and make excuses for him, then I think, A, that makes a big difference for me going forward. Uh, retrospectively, it makes some difference. Sure, you'd have to be foolish not to rethink some things and wonder what the weaknesses were that made this possible. You also don't want to over-interpret, uh, you know, these things are overdetermined. Every movement has its demagogic strains, its, 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 uh, its, its exploitable uh, aspects. The irony for me is I thought we had sort of beat them back pretty well on the conservative side. I mean, Buckley expelled the Birchers way before my time, but in my time, we fought hard against Pat Buchanan in the 90s, and really the Buchanan strand of conservatism uh, seemed to have been pretty thoroughly beaten by George, the time of George W. Bush's election in 2000. Then a, that strand, a kind of slightly different version of it, came back with Ron Paul in 2008, 2012. People forget he got, what, 20% of the vote, I think, in Iowa, maybe, in 2008. But... Um, Oh, was it 2012? I can't remember. But he, he was around and he had supporters. But again, it, it sort of receded. And one felt that, look, there's always going to be in any massive movement, in any massive political party, uh, elements and aspects that aren't so attractive and that need to be kind of, uh, you know, uh, marginalized at times, at times educated, at times maybe you know, dealt with their concerns dealt, dealt with in a way that's more responsible than the way they would want to deal with them, while acknowledging that some of those concerns are legitimate. All that stuff I actually thought had been handled pretty well by Republicans and conservatives. And if you had asked me, in, or this is one of the most surprising things to me about Trump, in early mid-2015, I generally would have said the Republican Party was in pretty decent shape. A lot of attractive young members of Congress and governors have been elected, some diversity, both intellectual and you know, ethnic and so forth, and among those younger members. A little different strains, some libertarianism, some hawkishness, some social conservatism, but I thought a reasonable mix of them, as, as you'd expect in a, in a big party. The conservative movement intellectually, there were the reformer cons, uh, as they're called, who were trying to think through a more reformist agenda, a little less dogmatically free market, a little more concerned about 
working class who hadn't done as well for the last 10, 20 years as as wealthy people, as better educated people, as, as corporations. And so I didn't I didn't think things were in such bad shape. And then it turned out either they really weren't in such bad shape and it just happened that Trump won and and winning makes a huge difference. I mean, I think that's where I think I would say that one can overinterpret these things. I mean, that, you know, he was lucky to win, but he won. I notice in your in your lineup of figures with the John Birch Society and then Pepe Cannon and then Ron Paul, um, you didn't mention Sarah Palin, who I know you supported for at least some time, who right. to me in a way seems the most Trumpy figure uh, in terms of the way she talked sometimes, the populism she appealed to, the way she did tried to wink at, um, let's say, uh, religious and racial issues. Do you put her I don't in that think category? she winks. She's, I don't think she winked at racial issues at all, for example. I, so I don't, I think you're, I think it's partly right. Obviously, she turned out to be, A, she's a big disappointment. She turned out not to be what some of us hoped. I mean, for me, she was a second choice in 2008 for the vice presidency after Lieberman, right. and it was a gamble. But I thought, actually, it was a way of co-opting, and obviously I was wrong to some degree, a kind of populism that I could see coming, so I'll take a little credit for that. Um, but look, she was McCain's running mate. There was not a touch of protectionism. There wasn't any isolationism. There was no racial issue with Sarah Palin at all, really, honestly. Well, there was birther-type stuff, and oh, there was what? talked about Obama. Well, that's um, later. No, that's later. But that's once Obama wins, but not in the campaign. I mean, she really was, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say everything was perfect, but I think she was, I think Palin as a McCain, I mean, she should have to be personally flawed in a way I didn't expect. But the idea of Sarah Palin, you know, as a running mate to someone like McCain, uh, bringing in a kind of populism that could be educated, um, I don't think it was crazy. Now, I, I'm not going to defend her personally. She just turned out to be much shallower and, uh, you know, more vulnerable to all this silliness and demagoguery than I than I expected. So, um, so yeah, I take the I take the criticism in the sense that she pers- it was a misjudgment about her personally. But I I think and but I and she has become Trumpy, so it's easy to then say there was a lot of Trumpiness there from the beginning, and she, and she became Trumpy pretty quickly after 2010 or so. But I think if you really what she looked like in 08, whatever her flaws and limitations, and I'm not going to deny those, it didn't look to me much like much like Trump. I mean, um, uh, you can't you say don't she's think a, that you don't think that some of the way she sort of talked about facts and the way she sort of seemed to. Um, uh, you know, the way she would talk about like scientific issues or, or well, maybe, just the, I mean, she her, wasn't very well educated her whole approach to what? But Sorry. The, I mean, I'd say she wasn't well educated, but I don't think there was the kind of systematic attempt to deny truth and truthfulness and make up things and sort of, you know, uh, just lie, you know, uh, the way Trump does. And, um, you know, she was proud of being uh, the, the first woman to be nominated as vice president on the Republican side. And so on the on the gender issue, she certainly wasn't. You can't accuse her of that. So I don't know. I mean, I, I don't mean to defend Sarah Palin excessively. I'm perfectly willing to say that given what I now know about her, I'm, I'm I, she would not have been right. a good vice president. But um, and and maybe her rise was a little bit of an indication. But again, that's always been there in American politics on both sides. I mean, elements of that. It's just the Trump is just a whole different level, I think, in terms sure, of the combination. I, I, I'm not saying Trump isn't sui generis. I, I guess you, you kind of said before we got onto Palin that you thought that the party had conquered these things. Well, no, fair enough. But I mean, I would say so. Yeah. To, just to take your point, though, with the Palin experiment happened in 08, um, she 
she resigned as governor. She ended up not having much of a future, it appeared, in the party. And in 2012, we have the most, you know, Romney, Ryan, whatever you think of them, the most kind of, you know, un, <laughs> unpopulist, probably ticket, uh, uh, you know, uh, earnest kind of policy-ish ticket that you're going to get. And I'd say most of the 2014 candidates really, again, they went across the spectrum from more moderate to more conservative. But uh, a lot of the people who won in 2014 in the House and the Senate and the governors seemed to me to be pretty impressive. So I, I, I would have said – I would have been wrong. But I would have said in early 2015, yeah, well, the Palin thing was kind of unfortunate and turned out not quite the way some of us hope, but not really a marker for the future. Now, I agree once Trump comes along, one looks back at a different – you know, in a different light, which is fair enough, and says, "Well, this is this was a, a precursor or something." But, but I, uh, so I, I, I don't, I don't quarrel with that. But in retrospect, but I, I don't know that it was. So I don't think it needed to have been that way. I guess I'm very struck with that by Trump. I mean, once he wins, of course, both the nomination and then especially the presidency. It's an interesting question if Trump had lost the election. It's, everyone expected sort of how much of a dent he would have left, so to speak. But. But being president is just very powerful, you know, and presidents do reshape parties and movements. So I'm not a minimizer of the impact of Trump, quite the contrary. No, no, I, I guess I, I, I don't disagree with you that, you know, these things, there are contingencies here and Trump wasn't, you know, destined to win the primary or the general right. election. But it seems to me that it's worth examining, not just for Republicans, but for all people, that this guy who I think you and I both find uh, grotesque in some way, um, that he could in any circumstance, win 46% of the country, yeah. even against an opponent like Hillary Clinton, what what that says about the people who voted for him and what it means about the party that the infrastructure of the party was willing to go along with it and largely speaking have gone along with it um, in Congress no matter what he tries to do. And it it seems like that is worth reexamining the Republican Party in that light. Yeah, yeah I agree. And it, it turned, there are all kinds of things one can say ranging from Elites being out of touch uh, in in general in a way that I mean I thought they were somewhat out of touch. I was actually a lot on the a little bit on the. What's the reason I was sympathetic to people like Palin is I thought the elites were a little out of touch to to the after effects of two thousand eight and of Iraq for that matter in the sense of the elites leading us astray and not having paid a price in in oh eight or twelve uh, all the way down to the you know to the. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? The unpleasant underbelly of the Republican Party and conservatism, which turned out to be more unpleasant and a, a bigger underbelly, to, to mix metaphors here, uh, than I than people like me thought. I don't I don't deny that at all. I, I think you know I would also distinguish between people reluctantly voting for Trump, which was true of a fair number of Republicans who you know rationalized it. I I didn't, but they did in terms of the courts and policy, and he'll be constrained. Uh, and then for me, the more shocking thing, and I was surprised he won, obviously, but the more shocking thing was the continued rationalization when it became clear he wasn't changing as president. And then not just the continued grudging rationalization, because I still think it's not a crazy position to say that, look, you know, uh, Bill, you're too critical. You know, people say this to me all the time. You're, you're just too critical. There's some decent stuff. I don't approve of this stuff and that stuff. You're fine. Let's call balls and strike, criti- strikes, criticize him when he's bad, but don't don't be so unrelenting. Relenting. I don't agree with that, but I can sort of see that. What's most horrifying, I guess, is the the way, and this has been a lesson for me, that in, in psycho, uh, sort of psychology, human psychology lesson, it's hard to rational, it's hard to sustain a position of very skeptical support of anything, I think. You rationalize that, you, you, you articulate that, but you don't, you're not comfortable with it. And then you want to sort of tell yourself, you know what, he's actually better than we thought. His enemies are worse than we thought. And he's doing more, accomplishing more than I, than you realize. And some of that stuff you don't like, that's maybe necessary to get it done. And suddenly these people whom I've 
respected for years and liked for years and been vaguely and generally allies with for years, one hears them saying things about Trump and about Trump's opponents and about the current situation politically, and you really feel like, gee, we're looking at two different countries. I, I do feel now, for the first time you mentioned my, my, my father, I mean, I sort of feel like I understand what it must have been like to go through the late 60s and early 70s, which I was kind of a kid then, and it wasn't for me some big disruptive experience, really. But sort of the idea of being you know, allies for 20, 30 years with people and suddenly one day realizing we just have a fundamentally different view of this. And, and it's not just a matter of degree. It's almost a matter of kind. Uh, that right. certainly but happened among, on, 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 the, on the conservative side in 2017. What, to what degree, though, I mean, do you think, I mean, I, I, you know, obviously I'm more liberal than you, so I have a different perspective on this. But I, I guess I would say that when I see things about Trump's appeals to bigotry or Trump's appeals to kind of um, untruth, I, 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 as I said before, I see him as sui generis figure in American politics in a an unprecedented danger in a way that other Republicans were not. I also look at things like the way Republicans talk about African-Americans and voting rights and the way they talk about global warming. And I think there are there are sparks from this from within the Republican Party, from within the mainstream Republican Party, which have given oxygen to most of Trump's worst qualities that he's carried on to a new degree. Do, do you think that's fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think I rethought some of those sparks, so to speak. I'd also say one could probably may always make that case about any, you know, demagogue that he's picking up things that weren't fully suppressed and were tolerated and even indulged by major parties. And that's probably been true on both sides. And, and on all sides, it, it is always going to be the case that they'll be there somewhere. Maybe they could have been condemned more, more systematically, I'd say, on the Republican side. There was a kind of, and I felt this a little myself, kind of a relaxed attitude towards some of the, uh, let's call it the idiocy, in a way, on the right, because it hadn't had much effect, it didn't seem to me at least, in terms of of governance in terms of the actual presidential candidates, the actual big state governors, the actual leadership in Congress. Again, what everyone thinks of some of these individuals, you know, they didn't seem to have that character. So one thought, okay, well, there's this kind of stuff going on out there, you know, but um, it's not really like, you know, it's not, it's not an infection that needs to be cauterized. It can just be kind of left at its low boiled, again, mix about four metaphors. And I think that was maybe, yeah, in retrospect, I, I think that was a mistake. And I do think I've, on some of these issues, now look back in a slightly different way at things I kind of tolerated or turned a blind eye to or was critical of, but wasn't really, right. you know, very, well, the global very worked up about. Was... That, global warming would be a good instance, you know? I mean, it seemed to yeah, me that, that was not a fringe thing in the GOP. Right. But it seemed to have no, I mean, it was sort of an academic issue in a certain way in the GOP in the sense that I suppose- Well, would we all die from giant waves, but yeah. No, but I mean, they weren't governing. I'm just saying there was not, you know, governors don't do much about it. The Obama did whatever he did by regulation. And it's, you know, whatever was going to happen, you know, there would be a time when Republicans would have to make some serious policy choice. So we were in fact, so I'll give you an example on that. We published probably 10 articles- in favor of, in different degrees of favor, uh, of a carbon tax uh, or some form of, of well, a carbon tax or some form of energy tax, really, uh, as a hedge against global warming and as actually a very effective way to raise money better. And you could actually use that money to cut the individual, uh, the, the payroll tax and so forth. It was kind of part of a reformer kind of agenda almost of getting more money to working class Americans. And, you know, whatever your view on global warming, it wouldn't. there's no reason not to tax carbon emissions a little more. So we published those pieces. Now, in retrospect, do I wish 
I had probably personally looked at the science more and been a little more harsh on those who were simply, you know, denying the truth as opposed to saying, look, whatever you think about it, let us convince you that this particular tax isn't so bad, even if you don't want to sign on to the whole global warming agenda. I don't think it was crazy of us to take that point of view, but I do think in retrospect, a lot of stuff was maybe tolerated with kind of benign uh, neglect, I guess, to use Moynihan's term, uh, on the right that, you know, for a while it was benignly neglected and reasonably benignly so, I'll, I would even say in defense. But, um, but it, yeah, it all turned out to be out there. The birther thing, which we were all critical of, of course, and I remember harshly criticizing Romney when he had that was it a press conference? I can't remember with Trump. Remember when yeah, Trump, Trump endorsed Tower, Romney? Yeah. And I remember this is really disgraceful. This guy has disgraced himself. Romney shouldn't stoop to even welcome, welcoming his support. He doesn't need to do that. I remember saying that. And then, you know, I said it and I think we wrote about it for a week and then we kind of moved on and, you know, one assumed, okay, well, that was kind of unfortunate. But and and, and I mean, the idea that a birther could be nominated by the Republican Party in 2016, that I really that really I did not expect. You mentioned the stuff, just to follow up on, on some of the stuff you were saying, which was that uh, the Weekly Standard for a while was owned by Rupert Murdoch, and obviously you were on Fox News for a long time, mm-hmm. um, I guess no longer. I, I was wondering what effect you think Fox News has had on the conservative minds in this country, and um, if you've reexamined that or what you think of it today, or if you think the network has changed, any of the above. Yeah, I said all of the above, I would say. And again, these are hard things to... Yeah, you don't want to sound defensive, and I don't want to. I don't want to also, uh, you know, mis misrepresent the truth. Is on when I was on Fox News Sunday, I'm for, it was really my main thing for about ten years. I would, I'd be pretty happy to go back and look at those shows moderated by Chris Wallace and with me and Juan Williams and Mara Elias and Britt Hume as the panel, and say they were good discussions. They were tilted a little conservative, but and I was heterodox some of the time. I was criticizing Rumsfeld. Britt Hume really didn't like that. I remember in two thousand four, two thousand five, two thousand six. So. Um, but in retrospect, and, and Fox News has gotten much worse, if you want to put it that way, um, I think. I, the parts of it I didn't have much to do with and didn't personally go on were pretty, you know, silly. And uh, I thought, uh, but again, I thought not really way, I do think it's changed. I mean, so I think they both, they dumb things down some, but the degree of just sailing off into real conspiracy theories, real um, just idiocy, I, I think that's much more dominant than it was um, than it was, you know, ten years ago. So, um, but again, these things is often the case in life. You have these things that are mixed bags, and you sort of think the part you don't like is the lesser part and the less influential part and the part that you just sort of have to put up with. And then, it, you know, one day you wake up and it's, you know, uh, kind of Frankenstein type moment. And the part that you just were putting up with is now running everything. You're, I think, um, maybe most famous for being a proponent of a hawkish foreign policy and support for the Iraq war. Um, how do you look at Iraq uh, almost 15 years after the war began? You know, I have a very mixed view of it, obviously, as any intelligent person would. I mean, I continue to think the case for the war was strong, uh, is strong. I was very unhappy with the way the war was fought, and I I said it at the time, so that's not a sort of, I'm not uh, saying something afterwards that I didn't say at the time. Maybe if I'd known that Bush and Rumsfeld were so dug in on not sending enough troops and letting the Civil War escalate out of hand, I, I you know, think you could make a respectable case that uh, one wouldn't have supported it then, but... I didn't know that. We, then there was a surge, which I was very strongly for, and that worked. And I think by the end of 08, it was an acceptable situation and, and a safer 
Middle East, actually, than it would have been if we had just left Saddam alone and, and the sanctions had come off. Then, of course, the, President Obama chose not to, I mean, Bush began this, but Obama really you know, didn't make a great effort to leave troops there. That combined with the Arab Spring, which I was somewhat hopeful about at first, I've got to say, but that happening in the context of a general American withdrawal, I think, turned out badly mostly. And and then we have 500,000 dead in Syria and stuff. So pretty hard to look back at the last 15 years of American Middle East policy and say, well, it's all been great. But I would say, I mean, I'm happy to take you know some responsibility for Iraq, but I would say the counter argument is Syria where we didn't intervene. It tough, would have been a very tough intervention. And 500,000 people died there in a tar- horrible civil war and it, with really calamitous effects in neighboring nations and really very bad effects in Europe, incidentally, because of the mass migration in 2015 in terms of the political effects there. So these are tough choices in foreign policy, intervention and non-intervention. And I'm still on very much on the hawkish side in terms of... Even with Trump as president, you feel like advocating for for hawkish policy? In the well, that's East tougher, East. obviously. I mean, I, I feel like one has to be careful with Trump as president. On the other hand, it's not as if the world gives you a pass if you get to say, well, we, I'm kind of uncomfortable with this current president, so let's just do nothing in certain parts of the world where things get worse and worse and where bad guys, you know, think they have a green light. So I'm I'm encouraged by the fact that McMaster and Mattis and others are there. I But I'm, you know, I would be I'm uh, more cautious. I mean, I honestly, I'm not sure what we should do in North Korea anyway and some parts of the world. And, and uh, I think you can get up with the worst of all worlds if you have a kind of Fortress America, you know, rhetorical bellicosity combined with actual withdrawal and not doing anything and our allies become uncertain. I guess I am more convinced than ever of the uh, necessity of American leadership and American strength to the international liberal order. I think some liberals have actually uh, probably come more to that view after, especially after Trump and seeing what, you know, the America first type alternative and, and actually a little bit after Obama, I think, and thinking that there was excessive, so to speak, uh, withdrawalism, if that's, the right, if that's the word there. For people who maybe only know you, uh, maybe more liberal listeners and don't follow you on Twitter, um, people like to joke now that you've become like a woke left winger and, and all these things. Um, I uh, I was just curious, um, your magazine back a couple decades ago ran a lot of very critical things about the consequences of gay marriage. And I was wondering how you feel about that issue today, because uh, some of those covers you ran were very controversial about what gay marriage would lead to and so on. Yeah, no, I, I have thought differently of it, and I ex- obviously accept it, and uh, don't think it should. We should try to roll it back. I mean, whatever the theoretical arguments were then. Um, yeah, I'm, I think it's it's fine. Um, uh, okay, well, that was easy. Um, uh, <laughs> last thing, which is, you know, you're in touch with a lot of Republicans on the Hill. I assume a lot of Republicans in Washington. Um, what is your sense exactly of if Trump does something? really, really quite serious uh, in terms of an attack on the democratic fabric of the country. And people interpret that in different ways, whether it would be firing Mueller or firing right. many people at the Justice Department or something like that. W- what is your sense of the Republican willingness to go along with this stuff? I know you've you've said you've been disappointed in how they've been so far, but I, I, I'm curious um, where what you're feeling about that today and how optimistic you are. Well, I'm worried. And I think for people like me, that could really be the moment where things snap and we just say you can't really be part of a party that's not going to stand up on something so fundamental. Or you could say, oh, 
you know, thank God the party is coming to its senses a little bit. And, and I guess I hope we don't even have to test this in a funny way, but I, I imagine we will have to one way or the other. I mean, the general way I've been saying things is I think the news of the first year of the Trump presidency is that the institutions are pretty strong. I mean, generally, the Constitution, separation of powers, federalism, the private sector, civil society, universities, media, you know, whatever, courts, legal world. I mean, they're all pretty strong in America. We're not a third world country, if I can put it that way. So you can get a Trump-like president and not have a, you know, the ability to uh, undercut all these institutions. So in that respect, it's kind of a good story about the robustness of American liberal democracy. A good reminder for some people maybe that we don't want presidents who are too strong. We, we don't want government to control everything, certainly not the federal government, et cetera. So some conservative kind of lessons to be learned there too, I would say. The bad news is uh, I do think the the corruption, the degradation of, of norms is pretty serious. That's a harder thing to obviously specify, you know, to, to, to quantify or specify. And Maybe we snap back from that and it's kind of like a bad four years and you just kind of get back to a civilized, more or less civilized politics and so forth, or or maybe not. I mean, I, I'm more worried about that. So anyway, to get to the precise question, I mean, yeah, I think uh, I'm going to spend a little time trying to urge Republicans to, you know, in effect, draw some red lines. It's one thing to vote for a tax bill. It's another thing to, you know, just to, to, to launch attacks on Mueller or to sort of Either either willingly or almost kind of carelessly help lay the groundwork for Trump to move against, let's say, the special counsel. That I've been depressed by, though. I mean, there the degree of of unwillingness to stand up. And how do you understand it? Is it politics? Is it tribalism? What what's going on? People are. I mean, the people you must talk to, people on the Hill, they must at some level know Trump is this somewhat ridiculous figure who doesn't have their best interest at heart, doesn't care about them, and is, like, what is, go- how do you understand Yeah, that? that's a good question. I mean, some tribalism, some fear and intimidation. I think, you know, he does maintain the support of the Republican, a good chunk of the Republican base, not all of it, and and, and people are a little too fatalistic about assuming that will necessarily be the case two years from now. I mean, he's had a good economy. He's had no obvious foreign policy, you know, real crises yet. Uh, he said one or two things that most conservatives like, the courts and so forth. So it's easier not to face the reality of tri- – I mean, the way I put it is – one way I think about it is it's sort of like a phony war almost for a lot of Republicans and conservatives. People like me complain and complain and complain and they just say, oh, come on. What's really happening out there? It's not so terrible. And and I think that's kidding themselves, but it's hard for me to prove that until something happens. Now, I do think he will be hurt if the economy slows down or if there are foreign policy crises, obviously, but also – Will Republicans, will conservatives rally to sort of support the basic institutions of our democratic order um, or the basic institutions of the liberal international order? Again, a lot of them are pushing back quietly on trade and on some of these things where Trump looks really irresponsible and they tell themselves, hey, we're still in NATO, the U.S.-Japan alliance is, you know, exists, we're not being totally crazy in our dealings with the world. But I worry that we're on thinner ice in a lot of these areas than people realize and four years is a long time. And if Republicans don't make clear ahead of time what some of the consequences of this will be, uh, then Trump will be emboldened and, and the people trying to restrain Trump won't be helped. And uh, no, so I'm, I'm alarmed about that. I would say, if you had asked, or another way of answering the question, uh, or I think a, a cousin, you know, a similar question is, uh, if you had asked me six, eight months ago, I would have said, yeah, look, I think, I think we can save the Republican Party. Trump could become an unfortunate parenthesis, but we can sort of get back on a reasonable course. I'm much less certain about that now. I really am open to the notion that 
people like me will end up in some attempting to try some new centrist uh, party or independent candidates or, I mean, who knows what, but that the notion that you can just put Humpty Dumpty back together again, the Republican Humpty Dumpty back together again, even the conservative Humpty Dumpty back together again, uh, that for me, that's become pretty questionable. Have you talked to Lindsey Graham about this? Occasionally, not not recently, but he's now recently been tweeting about how much he likes playing golf with Trump. So, I, He's the one I can't understand the most. I find it the most sort of puzzling because he was so critical six months ago. Yeah, these guys do go back and forth quite a lot, and it seems to depend a little on, I mean, they're politicians, and they have short-term interests, and they, it's a rationalization, I guess I'll, I'll maybe close with this. Uh, the one lesson I've, people like me who grew up in the Cold War, we learned a lot about the um, power and the dangers of, of uh, ideology and of, of being a true believer. I think that's the name of Eric Hoffer's book, isn't it, The True, true Believer? And, you know, the communist fascists as well, of course, though, you know, these people who – super smart intellectuals and thinkers and artists and so forth who talk themselves into what now seem like just insane and very destructive uh, to embracing those insane and destructive doctrines. And so that's something I sort of feel like I had a, you know, a sense of just from, from, from reading and, you know, about the Cold War and also about fascism. And, and, and one forgets how many intellectuals were in love with various forms of fascism in the 20s and 30s in, in Europe. Um, the, the power of rationalization is not is something I think I really underestimated, though, that the degree to which you can just tell yourself that, you know, I can help shape what Trump does on X, but to do it, I have to flatter him a little, but you know, so what? I just flatter him a bit and then I can flatter him a little more and I better not criticize on this because, you know, then he'll get annoyed at me and it's still playing for a different game and you end up going down a, as I said before, I think a very slippery slope with this, with the excuse making and the rationalization and, it, and a lot of people who are not bad people and they're not, um, you know, simply weak people even, but the, uh, they, are, they are rationalizing a lot of behavior that I think if they could step back and look at it, they would say, Ugh, God, what am I, what am I doing? Uh, Bill Crystal, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. And um, uh, thanks for coming on the program. My pleasure. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dillon. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at Slate.com. If I Have to Ask doesn't stress you out enough about the state of the world, why not give the Slate Political Gab Fest a shot? It's an awesome podcast hosted by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, John Dickerson, who's the host of CBS's Face the Nation, and David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. And every week they have the kind of informal and irreverent discussion you want to listen in on. Seriously, this is a fantastic podcast. A lot of my friends listen to it. They often tell me it's better than my podcast. So subscribe to the Slate Political Gap Fest wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.